This week's guest is master watchmaker Cameron Weiss, the man behind Weiss Watch Company based just outside of Los Angeles. His upbringing, education, and work experience have taken him all over the United States as well as to Europe, but he settled in California having launched his watch company to bring back a larger focus on American-made watch brands. We go into how he got his start in the industry, what his in-game is, and how he's gone from sourcing other manufacturers' movements to now even providing parts for some of the largest watch groups in Switzerland. Cameron and I actually first met a couple years ago at Luftgekult, the air-cooled Porsche-focused car event, and have been loosely in touch ever since, so it was great to sit down for our chat. We really go into the behind-the-scenes of his business, as well as a bit of car talk, both old and new. If you're into watches and want a unique perspective into what goes on surrounding the industry, I think you're going to dig this one. And even if you aren't, you might just learn something anyway. I know I did. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Cameron, thanks for uh, taking the time and being on the Standard Age Podcast. No problem. Thanks for uh, coming out to Torrance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of jump off point is usually like where everybody grows up. So you're from this area, right? Uh, I'm from a lot of areas, actually. Okay. I, I moved around a bit. So I started off growing up in San Diego, went from San Diego to the Seattle area. Oh, wow. Okay. That was very different, and I, I loved it. It was so much fun having rain. <laughs> Yeah. It was the coolest thing. There was, you know, forests and, and greenery, mountains and snow. So I loved it for a long time. Um, but then the rain definitely wears on you. Sure. So came back to Los Angeles, graduated from high school here in Torrance, went from there to USC. Okay. Went from USC to um, Florida. Lived in Miami for a while, went to New York, then back here. Got it. Okay, so let's rewind just slightly. Uh, growing up, what were you into then? Because, I mean, between Southern California and Seattle, that offers a wide range of, like, outdoor activities, obviously. Yeah, I, I was definitely an outside kid. I was not inside playing video games. Um, very little time in front of any kind of computer. Not that there was much to do on computers back then, other than word processing yeah sure but uh mostly outdoors messing around with you know anything ocean related um and then of course up in washington it was more like boating and and hiking and stuff like that so you weren't surfing up there i did surf in washington it was a, it's a two-hour drive from seattle to get any waves but we had this other thing that we would do we would actually tow a surfboard behind a boat yeah Oh, and yeah. so we'd basically be like wake skating, but with a surfboard. Sure. Um, we weren't as advanced as using an actual wake because we didn't have a, a true wake boat. We just had an old like 1970s. Uh, like outboard? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A ripple. So we couldn't get a good wake going to <laughs> right. just surf the wake, but we would just tow ourselves. Yeah, that's awesome. I uh, grew up with a guy uh, who had a lake house and kind of similar, but he, they ended up getting like a wakeboard boat. So then yeah. we had a little bit, but yeah surfboard all the way not a wake skate that was this is all pre-wake skate yeah i don't it wasn't I even a don't thing think they existed back then yeah um well that's awesome so you mentioned you went to usc what was your course of study there like what'd you do so i went there for business administration i did a couple years uh dropped out because it was not for me okay i found that there was too much too much focus on like crunching numbers and paperwork and things like that. And then as we got older, I had some some older friends at USC that were graduating and getting jobs. I was seeing the job titles that they were getting and the job descriptions of what they would do at, after school with their business administration degree, and it did not interest me at all. That's really interesting. Yeah. And hi, so you were a lot better than I was because I majored in the same thing. Your your foresight was maybe a little better than mine. <laughs> I mean, it would be great to have that degree. There are things that I do that I would benefit greatly from having followed through with that degree. Right. But I found an awesome opportunity. Um, I think it was junior year. 
that was here in the South Bay where I could actually go into a machine shop and learn to scuba dive. It was a, an underwater camera manufacturing company. Oh, interesting. And so there I learned CNC. I learned operating CNC machines, programming CNC machines, uh, a little bit of SolidWorks and 3D modeling. Not very much, just very surface stuff. And I got to start diving so I could test the equipment. So that was like right up my alley. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. So that was my segue out of USC, was into diving and and machine shop life. So how did your parents feel about that? You know, they were pretty supportive, actually. Really? I think they were surprised that I made it as long as I did in school. That's hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) They they could tell that I was a a hands-on person. Now, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have one older brother. Okay. And what does he do? He's a real estate agent. Oh, local? Yeah. Or a, he's a broker in Toronto. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. So you mentioned then Miami? Yes. So, what took you to Miami? Because they have a watchmaking school there, exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. And that was, that was the reason for my move. There's the Nicholas G. Hayek School of Watchmaking, which is a WOSTEP school which is Watchmakers of Switzerland Training and Educational Program. So when I was in high school, that was when I decided I wanted to be a watchmaker. Oh, really? Back then? Yeah. Now, what was that tipping point? So I was always interested in watches, um, but in high school is when I learned about watchmakers. And I I had a little bit of experience with them earlier, um, like knowledge of them, but it wasn't until around my senior year in high school that I started researching like watch workshops and and seeing what watchmakers actually do day to day and thinking about the people behind the watches sure as a kid I always just loved the watches and never thought of well who designed this and what makes them tick yeah and you know what's the history of this design and what's the the heritage What's that name on the dial? Who's that watchmaker that started this in the 1800s? So that that kind of uh, got me on this track of figuring out how to be a watchmaker. Now, were you always into like history and, and like historical things at that point, be it in school or otherwise? I, I mean... Because I it seems like I, that sort of gravitated towards you, you know? Yeah, I was always a hands-on person, so... Taking things apart. Yeah, taking things apart. If I, if I wanted something, I didn't necessarily go buy it. If it was something I could attempt to build, I would try to build it. I love that. That's yeah. awesome. So as a kid, uh, one of my like earliest holiday memories is getting all these tools for carpentry and like a stack of lumber. How old were you at that time? Um, that was, I might have been like seven or eight years old. A stack my parents of lumber. Were, you know, they gave me like saws and hammers and nails and screws. And uh, I don't think there was any power tools. It was all hand tools. <laughs> right. But still, things you could cut your hand off with or, or at least cut yourself open with or smash a finger. Yeah. Um, but the idea was... I could have my own tool set and my own stack of lumber at the house and I could learn from my grandfather, you know, how to use these tools and how to make something. So your grandfather was pretty handy. He was very handy. What about your dad? My dad, not so much. Okay, so it skipped a generation. <laughs> well, uh, on my mom's side, my grandfather was very handy. Okay, got it. Sorry. Yeah. So he, he grew up uh, building boats, fishing. He built... He built a thirty, it was a thirty-eight foot cabin cruiser. Wow! In New Jersey, that's and big. then launched it in the uh, in the Hudson. What? This yeah. is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> he had he had to get the goal to actually. So he's from Newfoundland, Canada, and he had the goal to go back to Canada through by um, boat. Yeah, by boat. So it, it's a pretty long journey, but he built this boat in his backyard over the course of many years. Um, but also at the same time, he was building boats every year for fishing when he was younger. Uh, but that was like a big undertaking. That's incredible. Yeah. 
So it was basically just your interest in watchmaking that took you to Miami, just to delve deeper. Well, I applied to the school, got into the school, and then moved. Um, so that's the reason I went to Miami. I didn't go there and then try and get into the school. Sure, um, sure, yeah. But yeah, I got into that school, and my goal was to get into a Swiss school because I I learned from speaking with uh, with other people in Europe that it's really important to get the right education. Um, there's plenty of like jewelry jewelry schools and um, technical programs you could enter, but it's not necessarily going to guarantee you a job at a Swiss company because they don't recognize those um, those certifications necessarily. So you might learn and be a perfectly fine watchmaker, but all the companies are Swiss. So, so you need that Swiss standard. Your objective was to wind up in Switzerland one day? Yeah. Yeah. And WoStep is a Swiss curriculum taught all over the world. So you could go to Switzerland and get a job immediately. How long is the program there in Miami? Is it two years? Two years. Two years. Yeah, okay. two years full-time. So you're doing 40 hours a week with two master watchmakers. Um, there was six students in my class. So three to one ratio. Yeah. Very, very small, um, really hands-on program where in two years, if you're the type of person who's going to get up there and really push your, uh, your teacher and, you know, come up with your own projects to do, you can learn a lot. And were you that person? They really, the kind of person that gets into these programs they tend to be that person. So all six of you. Because you have to be pretty inquisitive <laughs> right, to, sure. to find yourself wondering, well, what's inside my watch? What do I, what can I take apart here? What can I fix or change or yeah, whatever? That's fair. Yeah. And then you jump to New York though. Yeah. So after school, um, I got a job immediately with Audemars Piguet. So the idea was to move to New York, work for them there. But first I had to go get training in Audemars Piguet movements and of course also the history of the company and all all of that for sales purposes. Um, but I had to go to Switzerland first, went there, uh, spent some time at the factory, did all the, the Swiss stuff, which was amazing because I had never been to Switzerland. So having kind of started to devote my life to watches and never having been to Switzerland, to be able to go to Switzerland with a company like Audemars Piguet and see the inner workings there was unbelievable. It was the coolest thing ever. Uh, now, are they based in Geneva? No, they're they in Labrasu. Oh, Labrasu. Which okay. the closest big city is Geneva. But it's up in the mountains. You go over the mountain pass and you drop down into a Valley de Joux. And you have this little town, Labrasu, which is basically only Audemars Piguet a little cheese store and like a couple cottages. It's really tiny. That's so cool. Yeah. So they paid for you to go over or did you have to pay? No, your no, way? they, I was already hired with them. So they, they brought me over there. What was your title then? Uh, I was an, what was it? Uh, technical advisor. Okay. So, so you would in theory be working in a store. Exactly. So I worked in New York City. They have a boutique and then they also have a corporate headquarters. In the corporate headquarters, they have a small watchmaking setup, um, enough to really do any kind of repair uh, and also a jeweler's setup. So they had a jeweler and a watchmaker in New York that would go between the boutique and the corporate headquarters, which was just down the street and up like 40 floors. <laughs> right. But uh, just an amazing setup. The watchmaker they had was much older and was having some health issues, so he was kind of phasing out and retiring. Um, they hired me, and I was able to go in there and obviously not fill his shoes because he had been a watchmaker for, I think, 55 years or something like that, but at least come in and learn from him, try and absorb as much as I could, and, and also learn from all the other Audemars Piguet watchmakers in Switzerland, and then in Clearwater, Florida, where after Switzerland, I went to Clearwater and they have watchmakers there, uh, where I was able to spend some time working with them 
and do some more training. So why in Clearwater? Is that like a service center or something? Yeah, service center. Okay. And now it's actually more than just service. Um, it's a larger office, but uh, some of the best watchmakers in the U.S. are at that service center. Wow. Yeah. Now, was the design... So obviously now you have Weiss, your last name, Weiss Watch Company. Was that... Earlier I was asking if your objective was always to go to Switzerland, but really was the end game to start your own deal? Or was that a byproduct of... How, how did how did Weiss really just like come about brass tacks? The the end game I always wanted to start my own brand. However, when I started, I thought that meant I would have to move to Switzerland. I didn't think it could be done here in the U.S. And I didn't think that anyone would be interested to see it happen here in the U.S. See a a watch made here in the U.S. And what it didn't year was seem this? Something that was, you know, marketable. That was early 2000s. Okay. Yeah. So a while ago. Yeah, a long time ago. So I think Hamilton had already kind of... Yeah, everything was yeah, gone. Everything the, was gone. The only thing that was here was RGM, who he's been here since the 90s. Um, small production, you know, not like a, a huge company or anything like that. And there's probably, you know, unknown to me at that time, there was probably other watchmakers as well, also making a, a few timepieces a year in the U.S. Um, but it wasn't any, you know, anything that the average watch consumer would ever hear about. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd have to be in pretty deep to to learn about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the goal was always to start my own company. And then, so what was the first product you made under the the brand? The first product we made was the thirty or the forty-two millimeter field watch standard issue, um, black dial with a green canvas strap. That was the first watch. We still make it today. Um, it's really kind of the ethos of our brand is that type of watch, uh, understated, kind of like a very classic design, uh, but very. Um, very legible and practical mm -hmm. as far as America goes. Practical is very important. Even when you're thinking of something like a mechanical timepiece, which is basically an obsolete item that's totally unnecessary. Sure. It's just a mechanical piece of art, but I still really think that practical and legible uh, is extremely important in a watch. So I'm driven by aesthetics. I love the watch. I have a quick question. Why did you choose the nine o'clock position for the seconds, the running seconds? Well, the, it's dictated by two things, really. One, history. Two, the movement that we started with has the sub-second hand there. Got it. Um, so I chose to start with a, an ETA 6497 movement which was originally built for a pocket watch. So you'll see if you look back into, um, you know, if you hop on the internet and, and you look at old pocket watches, they're all going to have little subdials for the second hand. Sure. And one of the reasons that that exists is because it's a little more complex to actually put the second hand in the center. You already have a wheel that is rotating once a minute. Right in that location kind of offset. So if you just make a longer pinion on the dial side, you can place a hand on it and it will show you that the watch is running. Um, if you want to have a central second hand, you actually have to add a gear. You have to drill a hole through the center of your pivot in the center of the watch. So there's a long tube and it's very complex um, to drill a hole that long and that small. So you're adding a bunch of extra components. That adds to the thickness. Which will add to the thickness. Um, it takes away from the durability factor a little bit. Oh. And back in that time, it was really something you only saw on chronographs because they had to do it. For the chronograph seconds. And chronographs were far more expensive to begin with. That was like a luxury to have a chronograph pocket watch. Um, the price of a chronograph pocket watch would have been 
like many multiples above a regular time only with the offset second hand. Got it. So super practical function um, and just simple. So how those early days then, like how was your manufacturing set up then? Because obviously you were using an, a modified ETA mm-hmm. or, or an ETA then. So were you back then making cases then or were you buying cases elsewhere? Or was it so it was a puzzle piece you put together but had your own dial made? How did that come about? So when we started, I started it in my apartment. So we had no like manufacturing, no CNC machines. Uh, I just had my home workshop, which I had kind of been amassing tools since high school, um, things for mainly for watch repair. Uh, so I could do all the assembly work and, and all the finishing work, all the little whatever kind of filing and polishing and all these tasks. But I couldn't actually make parts. I couldn't machine a case. Right. I couldn't, you know, make a dial. Uh, so what I did at the beginning was just design the parts send them out for manufacture um, to shops all over the U.S. I tried to stick to, to the L.A. area because it made it a little easier to visit shops, but certain things I just, I couldn't find shops Too in small LA. of the parts or? Um, I mean, or our quantities min- were minimums. not large. Yeah, our yeah. quantities were not large, so finding someone to work with us was very tough. We had no footprint as far as a business. So if you run a credit check on the business, it's not going to come back as anything you want to actually involve yourself with. (laughs) Right. Um, So it was just, we were very small. So there was a lot of barriers. Um, But when I could get in front of people at these machine shops, they'd be a little more excited about the project. Yeah, absolutely. And see that I'm a real person and I'm actually a, a watchmaker and, Sometimes you're lucky and you end up in front of somebody who likes is watches. also a watch guy. <laughs> yeah. And they're yeah. like, whoa, we'd love to make watch parts at our, at our workshop. So I have a few manufacturing partners that I started working with like six years ago when we started. And we're still working with them today. Oh, cool. Which is very cool. And they're primarily U.S. made? Yeah. Or all entirely? Uh, you mean the, the parts. parts we're making? Everything that we're making, yes. US. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. We have a few suppliers of Swiss parts, but most of that stuff is uh, going to be like off-the-shelf kind of things. Like if you need a jewel, um, we're not necessarily going to design a unique jewel to then make 100 of them. Right. Uh, so that kind of stuff is usually like we're trying to fit into their existing products. But here in the U.S., there really is no existing watch products. So we design it, we, if we are sending it out for manufacture to one of these local job shops, we'll give them our file, we'll tell them our materials, and they'll be able to order it all, machine it all, get a first article to us to inspect. Um, and when we're inspecting, usually it's for service finish because they're getting all the dimensions correct and they're doing their own inspections for the dimensions but and tolerances. But as far as surface finish goes, that is a huge hurdle um, for working in the U.S. because you can specify certain surface finishes, but you could have one little tiny, like, funky swirl on the surface of a case. And then when you go to polish it, you just can't polish it out. And it's like, okay, well, you know, we met the surface finish tolerance that you had stated, but... There's this one swirl that just is causing issues. There's an aesthetic tolerance as well. Yeah. So, and some of it, you know, you don't even have a variation in the surface. There's no dimensional difference, but you see some kind of swirl from a tool mark that you just can't get rid of. So things like that. And we've been fortunate that most of the suppliers that we've worked with have understood that we're trying to make not only, um, you know, meet all our tolerances so we have a good quality product, but we also need to have an aesthetic quality to our product. So uh, up until this point, you're all self-funded? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is that true today too? Yeah. So you've just continuously reinvested and reinvested into your own company to build it? Exactly. Yeah. We're still, I own it 100%. Um, It's my baby, basically. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Absolutely. That's incredible. Yeah. It's amazing. So 
that sort of brings us to today, right? So, well, actually, let's jump back. What year was that that you like completed that first watch? The first watch was in 2000. I'm getting confused on the year. Uh, 2013, I believe. Okay, so about six years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was six years ago. Um, the first watch was completed for a while before I really launched the brand, but we launched in 2013. But I'd had the watch for like a year prior, wearing it and, and testing it and not really knowing what I was going to do with it yet. But the feedback I got was really good. Um, so I decided we would launch the brand based on that watch. Um, made a few little changes, but... And you had the dial made exactly the way it looks today and everything? Um, pretty close. Yeah. Some minor changes, but pretty close to the way it looks today. Now, was that kind of customer feedback driven, if you will, or was that more you looking down at it for a year and wanting to change it? Um, more, I mean, there's always going to be customer feedback that you receive and you're like, Whoa, how did I not see that? Like we should change this thing or we should change that thing. Uh, but then there's also the other things where you'll see something and you're like, that's not as I intended it. Right. You know, now that I'm seeing it in production and now that I'm wearing it every day, it's not exactly as I intended. Uh, and as a small company, you know, we're not, we're not making a watch and then putting it in front of an audience, uh, you know, in some kind of controlled setting and getting feedback. Right. We're just getting it, making the design, uh, and looking at it ourselves. Yeah, no focus so, groups. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're not running focus groups here and and doing all that kind of thing. But I obviously, you know, once I'm wearing a watch and showing it around to, to other watch people or non-watch people, I'll get feedback and, and take that into account. Sure. So you mentioned the 42-millimeter field watch. Mm -hmm. It's on your wrist. Yeah. Um, what is, what else exists in the lineup and kind of, if you could speak a little bit about the variations between the models. Yeah. So today we have multiple dial colors, same case design, same dial design, uh, but in, in multiple different dial colors, we also have a 38 millimeter version. So a little bit smaller, a lot thinner. Um, we, it's same overall aesthetic, but been scaled down to 38 millimeters uh still has the sub dial except it's at six instead of nine but overall if you see the two watches you're like that's just the little brother of uh of the 42 uh we also have or we had an automatic which is now sold out uh, an automatic version that was 38 millimeters um and since the introduction of the field watch we now have a U.S. made movement, which we did not have at the very beginning. Right, because you we had the ETA. all Swiss movements. Yeah. Uh, over the course of, you know, quite a few years, we were able to not only design a movement to replace that 6497, the, the Edda Swiss one. Um, so we designed the parts, prototyped the parts, uh, manufacture the parts now in this workshop that we're sitting in. Uh, and do all the finishing as well. So in a pretty short period of time, we were able to get into movement manufacturing. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So they just openly sell these machines, obviously, because machine shops have them. But is there any difference between like a standard machine shop that mills steel and like a watch? Because these parts are yep. so tiny. It, there's so a they're watch difference. specific, obviously, yeah. right? So they're not necessarily watch specific. Okay. However, if you look at our machines and the way they're set up, you won't find another workshop in the U S that has them set up like that. Right. Because we've taken these machines and, and set them up. Um, similar to if, if you had a car and you set it up for a certain type of racing, you know, your car is going to be very unique for that one task, a even though it's like, track. Oh, it's yeah. a, you know, it's a BMW, whatever. Like, and other people out on the road have them, but they don't have your version of it, you know? Right. So our machines are all kind of specially fitted just for what we're trying to produce, which is tiny little components with near perfect surface finish, uh, super tight tolerances, crazy tight micron tolerances, um, and repeatability because we can't, you know, turn on the machine and make a thousand of these parts 
and then start searching for problems afterwards. Right. Really quickly, we could end up with way too many parts that are just garbage and we'll have spent a lot of money making them. This week's episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry, located in Solana Beach, California, where owners Jana and Tim Jackson welcome you into their living room-like store, carrying a wide range of independent watches and variety of fine jewelry. Tim is GIA certified, and they also have a goldsmith in-house as part of their staff. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information, and if you're ever in Southern California, please make it a point to visit the store. You can also find a wealth of information via Tim's blog, independentintime.com. Of course, this is also brought to you by Standard H. Standard-H.com is where you'll find our online shop providing branded merchandise to support the podcast. And if you subscribe to our email list, you'll be one of the many insiders receiving exclusive special offers. And now back to my conversation with Cameron. Now, back on the product just for a hot second, what is kind of your price point so people get a better idea of what these puppies cost? So we start at around $1,000 uh, and go up to $2,800 unless it's precious metal. We do make a watch in 18 karat yellow gold. Um, and I actually made a custom watch in platinum recently. It's in the works. Um, those are a bit more expensive. They're around $9,000. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that's primarily the case material you're speaking of. Yeah. Case material, um, anything that was stainless steel on the regular version would be either gold or platinum. Okay. And that's including the movement? Not the movement. Okay. Not no, the movement. movement materials stay the same. Right. Um, it would be wildly expensive to switch all the, um, I mean, just because you have a, a design for something doesn't necessarily mean that you can make it in a different material, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. Because uh, of the, the softness workflow. of the metals and things yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, the workflow on making a stainless steel case is completely different. We don't make it in the same way at all. None of the materials came from, come from the same place. Uh, we don't use any of the same tools. We don't use the same machines. It's completely different but we get the same exact looking thing, the same shape, the same tolerances, but in a totally different way because of the material alone. And a lot of people don't think about that, that you not only have to engineer the product, but you then have to engineer how it's made. You have to figure out exactly what machine it's going to be cut on, where you're going to order your materials from, uh, how you're going to polish it, everything. Now are you the using whole process. like 904 steel? What what steel? No. Um, we use 316L. 316L, okay. Which is a super, it's just a great stainless steel. It's all you really need for a watch. It's like the, the ideal material for a watch. Um, then as far as gold goes, we have 18 karat yellow gold that we, that we make now. Uh, in that, that's actually sourced from California and Alaska. Oh, that's cool. So we go to the extra length to get gold local. as local as we can, um, which I had no idea that was possible up until we started looking to make a gold case. Um, so that's been great. That's super cool. Yeah. So that kind of takes us through the current lineup. Um, and you still source some of the parts elsewhere, right? But you're yeah. but you're making a vast majority here, would you say? Yeah, we can we definitely make the the majority of all of our parts here for our American issue field watch. Now, do you ever foresee yourself just spitballing making parts for other watchmakers? We do. We oh, you do already? Make, yeah. Oh, wow. We currently make parts for other watchmakers. Right now, we don't make any parts for American watchmakers. Yeah. Currently, we're not making any parts for American watchmakers. We're making parts for Swiss watchmakers. That's got to make you feel pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I would cool. like to someday have more American companies, you know, that we can make watch parts for, but there just aren't many companies that are established enough to to really need, like, movement parts or... Now, 
how did those relationships come about? Did you reach out to them saying, hey, look, I have these fresh machines. They're making stuff. I'm obviously making thousands of pieces at a time. Do you guys need any? Do you want any? Or did they say, holy smokes, Cameron's doing great work in L.A. Let's hit him up about parts. <laughs> like, how does that happen? No, so I actually, I work with a few people in Switzerland for design. So I have some mentors over there oh, cool. that help me. Um, they help me, like, we can, I bounce ideas off of them. And I don't want to say like get insider secrets or anything, but they've been in the industry a long time. And when I'm, you know, having an issue with something, I can say like, who's your supplier for these parts? Right. You know, like where do you get this raw material and why do you use that metal? Why do you use that alloy? You know, or like how hard do you make your screws when you harden them? All these little things that are behind the scenes and the end user of a watch, not only do they not know about it, but they don't care. It's not something that's going to increase the value of your timepiece at all. It's just something that you have to know and you have to get done properly. So to have people in Switzerland that I can ask about those little details, that was very valuable for me. Um, but what it also did is I kind of earned these people's respect by asking, I guess, the right questions. Yeah, um, and when they saw the work that we were doing uh, with our own design, they wanted to help a little more. So then when I had an issue with something, I could send them a part file and they could look at it and say, oh, well, you know, this is a little off or you need a little more room here. Um, and eventually it got to the point where we started talking about, you know, I can make these parts for their movement and they can make these parts for my movement and we can, you know, work together to get where we want to get, which is making our own movement uh, in a better way with more independence. So for the Swiss companies, their goal is the best quality. For an American company like us, we have two goals. We want the best quality, but we also have to make sure that our parts are coming from the U.S. because we really would like to be able to say we're an American-made watch. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a weird rule that it's just kind of vague, like um, all or virtually all or however they say it. Um, so we try to make virtually all of our watch here, you know, sure. um, as, as much as we can. So I know there's been other instances where people have gotten in trouble for not exactly. doing that. Yeah, and it's... It's a hard standard to live by because everybody's idea of what an American-made watch is sure. is different. Right. Um, so, in fact, I have a lot of people that visit the workshop, and they're like, well, you only have to do 50%, right, or 51% to be American-made? And no, that's not the case. It's supposed to be all or virtually all American-made. Um, but anyway, so we have that standard. In Switzerland, they don't have that standard. So there's actually parts that we make that are currently inside of Swiss-made watches because they don't necessarily have to have their parts made in Switzerland to make a made-in-Switzerland Swiss watch. Yeah, I mean, it's that fine line between made versus assembled, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you have Germany, which is even more relaxed. Really? Uh, yeah. That's Germany is just... Counterintuitive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They're, if it's designed by a German in Germany and then the... Final quality control is done in Germany. It's German made. No kidding. Like, which is why German engineering is a like a popular term. Yeah. Because it really is more just the German engineering, and them having really high standards. I see. So even if that part's coming from somewhere else, you know they designed it to spec, and then they, um, you know they oversaw its creation wherever it was actually made. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well. <laughs> so when you started out i know that you were dipping your toe in the wholesale market and selling through other retailers i'm assuming you're still doing that yeah we've been doing that for quite a few years now we don't have a ton of retailers i was just so my next question was kind of like how has your distribution model changed since say year one versus like what it's looking like these days year one we were not wholesaling anything there was all direct to consumer all direct to consumer um there's just 
you know, we didn't take any outside funding. So in order for us to exist and to continue to make watches margins and grow, we have to have a, some sort of margin there. And with wholesalers, it just wasn't possible for us to exist. Um, as we've grown, it's still very hard to supply wholesalers um, or retailers with wholesale product, but we're able to do it at a small percentage so that it helps get our name out there. Um, and it allows different customers to find our product. So do you guys do any advertising and marketing or do you kind of just use those wholesale accounts as your marketing vehicle? We do very little marketing, uh, almost all primarily word of mouth. Um, we do a little bit of marketing though. Uh, but I mean the retailers, they help get the word out especially because the retailers that we're working with are not necessarily retailers where you're going to like, I'm going to turn to look at watches, you know, these people are going into stag menswear, stag provisions in, you know, Austin, Texas or something just to see nice items, a, a good selection curated by an awesome team of guys over there but not necessarily watches. So they might discover our watches and it could be the only watch that has ever spoken to them because they're not a watch person. But that opens up their mind to watches and the fact that there's mechanical watches even, which that has always been my overall goal is to get people who wouldn't normally even know about mechanical watches to discover watchmaking. For me, the watch is extremely important, even though, like I said, they're technically obsolete. Everyone has a phone in their pocket with the time on it or a microwave over here with the time on it. The time is everywhere. But your watch is extremely uh it's like a little individual item that is very personal and little tiny machine and art and engineering and passion all packed into this tight little package on your wrist that you can keep forever. So I think a lot of people, when they get a quartz watch, they might kind of have that idea in the back of their mind, but a quartz watch isn't really for that. It's not going to last forever. It's not designed to last forever. It's got plastic parts in it and a battery that's going to leak into the movement. So you've already got that quartz watch in the microwave, in the phone, on all these other devices. So to me, the quartz watch doesn't really have a place anymore. Only the mechanical watch has a place. That's because really it interesting. serves a completely different purpose. Yeah, sure. So, Especially with like some of these brands that are coming out with quartz watches as of late. Yeah, and I, I'm not against quartz watches. I have quartz watches. Um, I like certain quartz watches, like the Breitling Super Quartz. Um, Citizen makes an extremely accurate quartz. They're technically interesting watches, and they serve a really specific purpose of being extremely accurate. But for me, and I think most other people that wear a watch, it's not necessarily for accuracy or for any kind of technical timekeeping reason. Sure. It's the nostalgia of a watch that is mechanical and could potentially run forever, be handed down generation to generation. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of kind of the generation to generation that sort of switches gears onto like the all encompassing subject of vintage watches, so how do you feel like your sales have been affected as the vintage kind of market has grown, say in the last five years, even, I mean, your, your, your company's six years old. Yeah. And I would say vintage has slowly, maybe even quickly been on the rise. Do you feel like it's affected you? Cause it could go both ways and I, I can explain later, but I kind of want to hear your thoughts. I think vintage is like the best thing that could have happened. For one, um, there's no such thing as like a vintage quartz watch, really. There's some kind of in-between phases where there were quartz watches, but 
most vintage watches that people are really interested in are mechanical. So that exposes people to mechanical watches. Um, it also helps people see value beyond materials. Vintage watches are not necessarily going to be gold and covered in diamonds to be considered valuable. Sure. In fact, they could be ugly and like smashed to the little pieces and you can barely read the time because the dial has so much patina on it. Whatever it is, they could look like, and I've seen people, you know, selling watches that the plexiglass crystal was so scratched up they didn't know that it said Rolex underneath it and so it was very inexpensive. That happens. It just looks like a piece of garbage almost, like something you would toss out or maybe sell for a few dollars. So to see past the physical materials and see the value in the history and the story uh, and the fact that that thing endured so many years of either being worn on the wrist or shoved in a drawer or passed from one person to the next is impressive and and people get that now. So that helps us a lot. Yeah. And as prices have risen in that market, yeah, yours start to look pretty good at their price point, I would imagine. Yeah, as prices rise across the board, um, it's amazing that I'm a, I'm a relatively young guy. Um, I'm 33 years old, and I can remember when I was first interested in Rolex, and you could go into the store and you could buy a stainless steel Submariner no date for like two grand any day you wanted to every single day you could go in there they had plenty of them and they were not expensive or at least by today's standards i think they're not expensive back then i was like oh my god two thousand dollars for a watch but uh you know that has changed across the board new watches vintage watches everything it's it's amazing to see how quickly that rose so we're definitely in an affordable part of the market. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your own personal collection then. Yeah. What, what are some of your favorite watches that you own in your in your collection? Um, so I've got a 1967 Submariner uh, 5512 reference, which is my one like vintage watch that is worth way too much money now. <laughs> <laughs> like I... It was a a piece of garbage, essentially, when I bought it. And now it's considered an investment piece, which is amazing. Um, And where did you get that? uh, I I bought that off of another watchmaker. Just a watch that was considered beyond repair, basically. Um, What happens a lot of times is these old vintage watches, when they're not in style, nobody wants them, you know? 10 years ago, or I guess a little longer than that, maybe between 10 and 15 years ago, that watch was just not considered a valuable watch. Nobody wanted it. You could go to the store and you could buy a new Submariner for a couple thousand dollars, three thousand dollars. So why would you want this old ratty one that has a faded dial and a faded bezel and, you know, one of the old cheap bracelets that don't feel like they're made of good quality? Why would you want that, you know? So you could, they'd take them apart and they'd use parts from them and they'd eventually be so, uh, have so many parts missing that it's just not worth anything, you know? And they stick them in a drawer. So you got that thing back up and running or did you send it out or? No, no, I just, I fixed it and and got it all back together. Yeah. Uh, And I've had it ever since, but it's just, it's so amazing how that happens and it's happening with Porsche, you know, oh, there's so 100%. many Porsches that people just, you know, they parked them and they were going to scrap them, but now they're valuable. And it's like, well, maybe I should try and find an engine for this, uh, this car. Maybe I, it's worth buying that transmission for, you know, however much money to get it running. Whereas before it was just scrap and you'd have to pay someone to get rid of it. The barn find. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty cool that a lot of that stuff is coming out now and there's a lot of uh a lot of other watches beside rolex as well but rolex definitely there's far more rolexes stashed away 
in safety deposit boxes and broken Rolexes that are sitting way more than any other company um, just waiting to be kind of discovered. So you have the 5512. Yeah. So that's my one like vintage watch of note. Um, and I actually, I took it scuba diving and everything. I, I would dive in it. I haven't now that it's worth so much. I'm a little worried, <laughs> but, um, do you still wear it in general? No, I, I haven't worn it in many years. I don't really wear any other watch now. Right. Um, when you've got your own watch that you sp- spent so many hours creating and spent so much time agonizing over the little details, I just don't really want to wear anything else. Like I'll see a watch and I'll like a watch and I might even buy a watch, but I just never end up wearing them. I always end up wearing my own watch. Sure. Uh, but that's not to say I don't enjoy other watches. Um, so I do have a drawer full of watches. Um, not necessarily expensive watches, but I've got uh, one of the Blue Dial Tudor um, Pelagos. Sure. Yeah, those are great. That one is a nice watch. Um, I really like that watch because of the bracelet design. With is it the modern one, the Glide Lock, or or uh, yeah, what's it called? Exactly, Glide Lock. I don't know what don't, the the one that kind of is micro patented. adjustable. Yeah. yeah, with the spring. Um, the super comfortable. In it. Yeah, exactly. So it's just a super comfortable bracelet, and eventually we'll make a bracelet. So I've kind of in trying to figure out how how to design our own bracelet i've been almost like researching other bracelets and thinking about all these little details um i have a, a blanc pond that has an interesting bracelet where the links are oval essentially um so it actually it, it's rounded the opposite way that you would think for the links on the inside where it touches your wrist um and that's uh one of the old uh blanc pond kind of 50 fathom designs uh from the 90s and then i've also got a brightling super quartz which i had always wanted a brightling super quartz and i ended up getting one um just because i like the super quartz movement even though it's quartz and i really prefer mechanical watches but still from a technical standpoint a super quartz is temperature compensated and you can actually adjust the rate there's a lot of little things in there that are technically interesting to me yeah that's cool what um it sort of brings us to kind of your podcast i guess that you were doing with matt farah yeah which was called uh watch and listen which you can see we have a whole video segment uh but we also just release it as a podcast as well if, if you don't have time to actually sit down and watch it. But if you go on YouTube, you can watch it uh, or get it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's watch and listen. Um, and basically, we're, we're talking about everything in the watch world, trying to get hands-on and actually have watches in our hands when we can. Um, we were very lucky that Crown & Caliber sponsored us so they could actually send us watches um, as a watch podcast that's not an easy thing to get someone to send you like a box that has a hundred thousand dollars worth of watches right. in it. <laughs> right. So you can just show them on your YouTube channel and talk about the, the movements or the cases or whatever. Um, yeah, but it's just a, a fun show and really with the goal of kind of introducing kind of a laid back way of getting into watches. Right. Um, Lacking all pretension. Exactly. If any. Because sometimes it can be very scary if if you're new to the watch world and you go into some of these boutiques and it could feel really stuffy and really uncomfortable. And it's like, oh, can I see that? And, well, that one's a million dollars and we're not taking that one out of the case or whatever it might be. And there's, it's a stuffy industry kind of, or it can appear that way until you get into it. Well, I was going to say, because going back to the earlier part of the conversation with like your mentors and people that are still in Switzerland, it's, it's so cohesive and kind of almost collaborative at times. And I would say that's rare perhaps in most industries to be able to kind of cross reference and talk to somebody from a different brand. Like I doubt Chevy and Ford are calling each other for things like that. (laughs) So, 
thing about watches is it's all it's all historical. So each person that's in the watch watch industry is like their own little encyclopedia. You know, they've got everything they've learned since day one. And there are some people who have a much thicker encyclopedia or many more volumes. Um, but when those people are gone, all that information is gone. Yeah. Because it wasn't necessarily written down anywhere. Um, so as watchmakers and technical people in the watch industry, not all watchmakers, it could be case makers, dial makers, um, people that specialize in stamping equipment or, or anything else. There's a lot of specialties in the industry that are disappearing. The knowledge is disappearing every single day when somebody retires or passes away. Uh, and the general feeling I got when I came into the industry and became a watchmaker was that people want to pass on their knowledge. That's cool. But it's very time consuming. So if they feel like you're the right person to pass that knowledge on to, they'll take that. They're time. extremely happy to pass on the knowledge. That's awesome. But if they don't think you're the right person, then they're going to be very shut off. So depending on how you kind of go into it, you can get one of two responses, which is the feeling that it's a closed industry and nobody wants to share secrets. Or you could find that with the right attitude, everyone wants to talk your ear off and like teach you everything because they know that like maybe they're one of a couple of guys that still do it this way and that's the right way to do it in their mind. So they want to tell you that that's how you do it. Yeah. It's funny. You know, it's, I kind of feel like it's similar in a way, um, especially in like stock editions, but, uh, like the vintage car market versus say like going to a cars and coffees of only like modern cars. Yeah. Now the guys that, you know, modify their new cars, they're tending to talk your ear off about what all they've done to the car. But if it's just a stock, I don't know, Ferrari or something, it's not going to be the same conversation with like a 250 owner short wheelbase. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. I mean, you're going to get a history lesson more than likely. Yeah, exactly. As long like they'll pick up on the fact that you're interested and exactly you'll actually like retain what they're saying and maybe pass it on to somebody or use it in some, some aspect. Uh, and they catch on and they'll, they're happy to share with you. Yeah. And you're pretty much a car guy as well. So yeah, you've yeah. got your Land Rover, I know. Yep. And you've got... Sitting right next to a Beetle in here inside uh, the workshop. I was going to say, and then I mean, we're <laughs> sitting right next to a Beetle. Now, what got you into cars for the... I don't know. for What got you into cars? I Same kind of story. As a kid, I loved cars Just as well. mechanics um, and stuff. Yeah, the mechanics... The one, the one thing about cars is typically you don't get to bring them inside the, you know, the boardroom or the office or wherever you're going, you have to park it outside and nobody's going to like, not only do you forget that you even have it while you're going about your daily life, uh, but you can't share it with other people, at least not as easily. You know, you got to wake up at 5am on, on Saturday or Sunday to make it to a cars and coffee to go meet up with those guys in a parking lot somewhere all cold and tired and might still be dark, but you know, it's a very different thing. Whereas with watches, you can have them with you all the time. You can have a lot more than just one or two watches. Uh, you could fit many in one drawer in your house. So I collecting, I always kind of like gravitated towards watches, but cars, just as interested. So in what's cars. your so what's your daily driver then? Daily driver is actually a sprinter van. Okay. Yeah, I daily drive a, a sprinter van four by four that is built out as like a camper. Um but then I also have a nineteen sixty two International Harvester pickup truck, which I haven't been driving as much lately, but that was my, my daily driver for, for a while before the sprinter van. Okay. Now, are there any sort of grail pieces, be it, I mean, with watches, it might be kind of tricky because you're, you're probably, your grail is one you'd be building, I would imagine. <laughs> you know, I definitely have grail watches, but there's something on, there are things I'll never, ever be able to afford. Give um, me one of them. 
I would love to have a Vianney halter watch. Sure. Um, really any of them. I, he is one of the most fascinating watchmakers that I have ever, I've never met him, but I've seen like video interviews and things like that with him. And he just seems like an absolute watchmaking nut. Um, but that's the kind of person that I would love to sit down with in his workshop and, and talk with him. And that's why I'm so interested in his watches and, you know, his creations really, they're kind of wild creations. Um, now what does he do differently? I mean, yours are very classic, but how would you characterize Vianney's? They re- they span quite a bit, but they go from like steampunk into some are a little more classic, but as far as the movement goes, he really, it, it, it almost seems like he has no limits for himself when he's thinking of things. Um, if he wants to make something work this way, he doesn't think like, well, the mechanics of it don't really seem like they'd work, so I just won't try it. He just goes for it. Um, but again, the, the design as well of the cases and the dials, um, some of his watches look like creations that came from outer space yeah yeah for sure yeah so car wise what what would you you know barring any monetary limitations car wise i mean what's your ideal garage look like i a vintage ferrari would be would be amazing but uh uh, more realistically probably like a a nicely outfitted defender would be would be really nice. What are your thoughts on the new one? Um, I, I enjoy new cars because they have a lot of creature comforts and things like reliability, yeah, which are very important. Which is why my camper van is not a Volkswagen. Uh, my camper van is a brand new Mercedes four by four. Sure, you know, if I'm going into the woods and I'm going off the trails onto BLM land and chances are I'm not going to see anybody else and I'm not going to have any cell phone reception, but I still need to make it back to the office on Monday. I need a new car to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, I need something that is more reliable than a sixties bus. Uh, so new cars definitely have their place. I think they're coming so I, out with the electric one too, aren't they? I believe so. Which I I saw could be very interesting. That. Yeah. Really recently. Yeah. But I don't, I don't hate on the the new Defender just because it's, you know, new and, right. you know, there will be a lot of good things to it. But I also think that the, the reason I like Defenders is because of that whole Jeep idea of, like, you're getting in it and you're probably going to be covered in mud and doesn't necessarily matter that all the panels are leaking water as you drive through the rain and you're getting soaking wet because you're already muddy and wet anyway and you're outside and you know everything's rattling as you drive down the road and (laughs) you can't hear a radio you don't even need a radio because there's no way you're going to be able to hear it it's too loud of a car right all these little things add up to a driving experience that is something you can't get in a new car yeah and there's there's a place for that, and then there's a place for the new cars. So are you a Defender 90 or a 110 fan? Or does it matter? It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I kind of like the I kind of like the bigger ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a family man now. Yeah, that's true. You got a little one? Yeah. That's great. Ten months old. Yeah. yeah. How's that been treating you? What's fatherhood like? It's in the owning best a business? thing ever. Yeah? Yeah. You bring her here most days? or No, she doesn't usually come down here. It's a long commute from home, um, and it, it just messes up her whole nap schedule and everything. Um, so usually she's at home, and my wife works for us, but she works from home now uh, and also takes care of Genevieve. Um, so just me coming down here, which is always sad in the morning when I have to say goodbye. Oh. But uh, <laughs> I, I definitely am so happy to have a kid now. And I was not a kid person before at all. Really? No, not at all. That's great. Yeah. Well, good thing it's this way and not the opposite. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea 
that I could love something so much. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats, man. So what is the structure of the company? You said, you know, your wife, Whitney works for you or for with you, I guess. Yes. Small family business. Really? Yep. So is it just the two of you? Uh, just the two of us currently. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then of course I have some, some contract workers as well. Uh, we can't do everything. But as far as full-time employees go, it's Whitney and myself. So as far as, I mean, I don't even know. Is there warehousing? Is there shipping, receiving, all that kind all of All here under one roof. Oh, wow. So yeah. you're doing all that stuff too. Yeah. Raw materials come in the, the door, get machined into parts. I do the finishing, decoration, assembly, quality control. We take the orders. We pack and ship. We send them out. We do warranty repairs, everything here. That's awesome. Yeah. Seems to be pretty tight ship. Yeah, it has to be. It's a lot of work for uh, a small team. So are you five days a week then typically, or are you here six, seven even? Um, <laughs> now that I've got a baby, I'm I'm here five days max. Yeah. There's no way I'm coming in on the weekends. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, draw I love line. watchmaking, but I love my, uh, my baby more. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, listen, man, I can't thank you enough for, for taking part in this. This has been yeah, fun. Yeah, no problem. I'm yeah. glad you could come by. Cool. Well, uh, let's touch base soon. Yeah. All right, Cameron. Thanks. I can't thank Cameron enough for taking the time. Given how small the Weiss operation is, he and Whitney are an incredibly busy couple with a baby Genevieve on their hands as well. So thanks so much, Cameron. I really enjoyed the conversation. Next week is a fun one. It'll be the first time I interview two people. So stay tuned for that. Until then, thanks to Clear Audio for the headphone hookup. And as always... Music provided by the talented Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful. Bye, everyone.